Hi everyone, John Clare here, and welcome to the Evofi Podcast, a finance podcast for humans. Today's episode is episode 16, where we'll be talking about employee benefits. Now I know what you're thinking, super exciting topic, right? But stay with me. This is actually important stuff and really impacts pretty much everyone who has a job and employer-provided benefits. We all go through an open enrollment process once a year usually. We select a health plan if we have that uh, ability and a litany of other optional benefits. But if you're like most folks, you likely blow right through this uh, process without giving it much thought. So my hope is after listening to this podcast, you'll slow down the next time, maybe ask a few more questions about some of the valuable benefits there are to protect you and your family's financial plan. So today, we're lucky to have Chris Leahy with us. Chris is the co-founder and managing partner of Leahy Consulting Services, which specializes in employee benefits and human capital management in Richmond, Virginia. As you'll be able to tell, Chris is not originally from Virginia. So see if you can guess based on the accent. Representing the EvoFi team today is myself and Dave O'Brien, with a special guest appearance toward the end of our show by Cecilia Fleming. If you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Check us out on Twitter or Instagram at EvoFi Podcast, or shoot us a mail at EvoFiPodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, this podcast is 100% free of any tax, legal, or investment advice. Our goal here is education and a little fun. If you need advice in any of the areas mentioned, tailored to your specific circumstances, feel free to give us a call and we'll see how we can help. In fact, I think you'll hear the disclaimer mentioned by all of our podcast participants today more than once throughout the podcast. Anyway, also, you may notice a few tech gremlins during this episode, but hopefully nothing too bad. So our apologies in advance. Without further ado, here's the EvoFi team talking with Chris Leahy. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the EvoFi podcast, a finance podcast for humans. I'm John Clare. I'm here with Dave O'Brien and our guest today, Chris Leahy, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Leahy Consulting Services. And they specialize in employee benefits and human capital management. We're lucky to have Chris here. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, John and Dave. Appreciate being here with you. Uh, so the first question I want to get into is, before we start having a little bit of fun, is tell us how you kind of got into this line of work to begin with. Uh, kind of feel like the monster.com commercial. I grew up to be an insurance underwriter. Um, and as that evolved from 30 something years ago, uh, and had exposure to underwriting and group health insurance evolved to really want to be on the other side of the table and be an advisor for customers, for clients, um, more broadly than just health insurance, but really helping them with their businesses and how they're handling the human capital to the best for their company and for those individuals. And so how long has uh, Leahy Consulting Services been been in business? Um, we signed the lease without a client in July of 2006. I okay. remember that occasion. Which is just about the same time that the precursor to Evo went into business. Without a client. I feel like without we've got a client, this report. Back in 2006. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and here we are. We almost, grew up together. and Now, you guys know each other. Uh, I'm looking at Dave met, and Chris. I've never <laughs> met this man before in my life. Okay. We have the same accent. So, To you? Does it really sound that way? <laughs> it's all Northern. It's all Northern. And says the man from Ohio. Yeah. That's, well, yeah I'm not going to do my Ohio accent. There's because right. there isn't one. There. Well, there actually could be. Oh, we're on it. Can you get a pop? Can you get some pop from the never mind? Icebox. That's Michigan. All right. Chris is saying, what, what's going on <laughs> here? I didn't. Uh, anyway. I thought I was going to right, talk about insurance. Two man, gonna, two man routines, tough to break into. We we used to have three, and we actually uh, we don't have the fourth person here today. We're in but, the speed round today. Yeah. Yeah. There's no female influence here, and I think that's going to be the problem. But hey, so we have a little bit of a speed round up front just to kind of lighten the tension a little bit. So we're going to try and roll through these pretty fast, and then we're going to get into the, the real reason why you're here. All right. Um, what profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Elementary school teacher. Oh, that's a good one. Wow. Yeah. Um, I would have to say that you're very good at educating us 
little kids on on the stuff <laughs> that we need to understand. Any particular reasons why that that uh, is appealing? Well, I got to go back to the little kids. Keeping Dave on track has been a challenge at times. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, understand and, and go back to the the what I was supposed to answer just then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was asking what uh, what the what's the appeal of elementary school in particular? Um, I've always been attracted to helping younger kids yeah. and you know help them learn different things and. Um, I think working every day with adults to think they know everything is probably only reinforced the idea yeah. of wanting to go back yeah. to help younger kids. If you can survive here, you can do, go back there, no problem. And you know, something that you don't get to do in you know professions like ours is use a lot of construction paper. Yeah. Which you know, if you're in the earlier phases, there, there, I remember a lot of construction paper in those those ages. We need and to I can do see more of that. that. Yeah. More of that. Yeah. All right, Chris. What's your favorite word? Hmm. Discipline. Great. Great. That's that's, that's, that's a, a first disciplined answer. Um, it's a very respectful answer. So, well, you guys intimidate me at Evo Fi. So, <laughs> well, we've had some some uh, curse words as favorite words. So yeah. the fact that discipline came out was great. What would you do differently if you knew that no one would judge you? <laughs> Attempt to sing and play the guitar. All right, I can. I, I don't bring my guitar in here, but I can appreciate that one. You ever, were you always liked music or did you ever play when you were younger? Thoroughly petrified of all of the above. <laughs> I have seven siblings and together not one of us could carry a note, even if you mashed all of our capabilities. But growing up, you grew up in Boston, right? Mm-hmm. All right. So there's a lot of good bands up in that area. So probably a lot of musical influence when you were growing up. Yeah. Truthfully, just terribly musically illiterate. They said yeah. this is the thing I would aspire to, not okay. the thing that I knowledge have knowledge of or could do. Well, I respect that. Greatest of all time, if you could name somebody. First one that comes to my mind, and all due respect to Tom Brady, would be Bobby Orr. Yeah. Growing up as a hockey yeah. player in Boston. Yeah. That's a good one. We actually, one of our other guests uh, also said Bobby Orr. So that's the first repeat uh, goat. Okay. Yeah. Nice. All right. So here's the last one. So we like to do a name that tune and theme of the podcast. All right, Chris. Hmm. Now this is. Now. I just said I was musically illiterate. Now, now that, that you got to get this. This one. is a, this is like a double uh, link for you. So here we go. I'm gonna put it into the microphone. I did say Eagles. It's one of the greatest hits. More than a, oh, Boston, more than a failing. Boston, you got Boston. Uh, but now, it kind of weaves into the, the 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 programming of this particular show, of this episode. Of this Why episode. do people sometimes buy or huh. have insurance? Uh, one, there's a good salesman, but two, it's more than a feeling, and it's not that. More more about peace of mind. Boston's um, peace, peace of mind. mind. Okay. I like them right, more than a good, feeling, right? Dave. That, that's yeah. good. We're not as rusty as I thought. No. No, no, All right, Chris. No. Now the ice is sufficiently it, broken, right? Yeah. All right. Now we're going to really do <laughs> that. I'm a complete cold sweat. Yep. Go All ahead. Right. All right. So uh, we'll start with a kind of a basic question, which is obviously people listening have heard a lot about medical insurance reform over the mm-hmm. past couple of years. Can you comment just in general on the landscape and, and kind of how that's maybe affecting medical benefits more specifically at the workplace and kind of what do you see out there? Did you say we had five hours? I said, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, we'll take five minutes. Yeah. Um, and at a very high level, yeah. we accomplished some things over the last 10 years. I think we're within a few weeks of being on the ninth anniversary of when the uh, ACA was passed. At this stage, healthcare, there's, with all the different factions, is an acknowledgement that we've at least achieved some necessary improvements or changes to the system over this period of time. And at this stage, we're looking at an individual market that folks can access healthcare. We've removed pre-existing conditions. Those types of things have been, I think, constructive changes. Um, I think we have a lot to do to stabilize the marketplace, and there's different opinions as to how do we stabilize it. But most importantly, we want at the individual level or at the employer group level, um, folks to have choice, affordability, and comprehensive coverage. And I think that regardless of your political stripes, people are acknowledging that, and now it's a matter of how do we find the best pathway to get there. 
So how, how have you seen that flow through to kind of some of these group plans that you work on? Uh, have things changed dramatically over those nine years? Um, I think they've changed dramatically for a host of reasons. I mean, one unfortunate shortcoming of the ACA is it never addressed the fundamental problem of cost control, cost management. Um, so we've seen costs continue to escalate, not at the pace that some thought it might, but we continue to see extremely high costs. Um, and so to that end, we've got to do some things. Um, the ACA for certain folks of certain segments of society ended up increasing prices dramatically. Um, and for others, it did bring access to something they didn't have before. So it's very lumpy, very mixed results with what you have out there from the Affordable Care Act. I think what we're looking at going forward is continuing to have multiple points of access to a system. We have 175, 180 million people, depending upon how you count the uh, beans, that have access today through the employer model, through unions. Um, so I think we have to be very sensitive to how we look at that model and what changes we potentially bring that is not too disruptive or you know, alarming to our society, to our economy. And so in terms of the, the different aspects of, of, of a group plan these days, I mean, it seems like there's nothing really new or revolutionary that's coming through. I mean, you still have got, you're either going to pay now or you're going to pay later in terms of cost sharing and, you know, co-insurance and all that stuff. Nothing really, no, no innovations there kind of in this space. No, I would agree with you, John. No, no innovations through what was initially introduced with the ACA, but perversely, um, one of the things that came with the ACA was federally established maximum out-of-pocket. So that's the most money when you're going to go to see the doctor, go to the hospital, all these different things, not your insurance premiums, but how much you've actually taken out of your wallet to pay for the care you've received. The ACA introduced maximum out-of-pocket figures that arguably were higher than what we had in most plans in the group market to begin with. And so what you've seen is an increase, not a maintaining or a decreasing of that maximum out-of-pocket, but mm -hmm. actually it shot up over the years. And now to, to figures that for most of us is just, you know, intolerable. I mean, figures over $15,000 to be the maximum family out-of-pocket. So it really is becoming a, more of a catastrophic coverage, right? Because fifteen grand is a lot of money, but if you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills from some sort of condition, then I guess it's all right. But yeah, in general, that's a lot of money. And, and I think that that is one of the levers getting back to the idea of introducing longer-term solutions that really get at what are the underlying costs and how do we better approach that. Um, get into the idea of insurance being to protect against these big losses that a person has, not necessarily every time you have a hangnail or, you know, um, have something more minor, have a cough. So I think the idea of looking at insurance to cover those big things mm -hmm. and a person having the capacity and starting to have the financial responsibility to manage for their more incidental, lower, um, lower acuity issues, mm -hmm. That's where health savings accounts have come into play. And the, the marriage between those two thoughts is, for a lot of people, having an insurance card held no value. So an employer was spending a lot of money for somebody to have something that they associated no value with um, until they had a really horrible problem. Mm -hmm. Health savings accounts allow an employer to buy less insurance up front, let an individual have an account, have folks like you help them with the investment of those monies potentially, and start to build something up for the point in time they might have it. For the others that have immediate healthcare needs, they have access to that health savings account. Maybe we can talk further about those. Yeah, I definitely want to get into well, that. Yeah, I think there's an area that we hear from people, a lot of questions around. So uh, health savings account, well, I, I have this flexible savings account. There's flexible spending account, or what's the difference? And I'm always curious, is it because not a lot of employees have an HSA available? Um, how broadly available are they in this country? And what's the difference just quickly between an FSA and an HSA? And why should people ask? Yeah, and the, the, you're right. There's a ton of acronyms out there. And the health spending account or FSA or flexible account, um, the biggest thing about those are they are a use it or lose it. If you're putting money out of your paycheck into that tax advantaged account, if you don't incur the expenses, you lose the money. So it, if anything, incentivizes you to make sure you at least have a consumption to match what you've put into that account. Whereas a health savings account, and for that, there are more specific rules that the IRS has established that you have to meet certain parameters to be able to open up and put money into a health savings account. 
But if you have that and you don't incur the expenses, you get to roll that money over. It's like an IRA. It's your money forever. And if you don't spend it now, you have it down the road and you can actually be investing it and it can grow tax-free. And then you can take it out of that account tax-free. Um, so it's one of the only, the only or one of the very few where you have the triple play of you don't pay taxes on the front end, you can have investment gain, and then you can pull it out down the road all tax-free. Mm-hmm. So for people who have an FSA, they're in a healthcare plan with their employer, how do they find out if they have an HSA and when could they start using one? So at their annual open enrollment with their employer-based plan, they should take a look at, does any of, are any of these plans health savings qualified? And the term you often hear is high deductible health plans or HDHPs. You can have an HDHP that's not necessarily health savings qualified, so you want to make sure it qualifies under the rules that are established by the IRS. So what makes, I, I wasn't aware that some could not be qualified for HSA. In general, is there an easy way to, to sure, determine? Sure, if, if you have any first, if they're outside of preventative care, because all the plans based on the federal legislation, unless there was a grandfathered program, um, and that's a small number at this point, all, most all of them cover preventative care at no cost um, at point of care. Outside of preventative care and, and some preventative medications, everything else you're supposed to meet this deductible first. So if you've got a plan that, gosh, it feels like it's a lot of money, I've got a $1,500 deductible in my plan. But if you have first dollar coverage for drugs where you're paying just a copay, that's going to disqualify you from got being it. in an HSA. Okay. I remember back when I was in the corporate world, uh, there used to be a choice of medical plans you know, within the group where you could pick the HMO or the PPO or the high deductible health plan is that is that still going on out there and if in and maybe you could give a quick primer on those types of plans that still exist so that people listening might be able to identify better with that sure and and there are several you know the majority of folks probably have choices of at least two plans and okay. sometimes more um, I'm not always a big proponent of all those choices because most of us don't like to exercise the um, responsibility of having those choices and what I'm getting at with that and I think if we accomplish nothing else today. If we at least dispel the misconception that, hey, if I pick the most expensive plan, that's the best one for mm-hmm. me. That's the best plan. Um, it, you know, a classic consulting term is it depends. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have a quick, easy solution. What I would really encourage folks to do, and again, I'm sort of the the geek of uh, getting involved in all this stuff, but is sit down with pencil and paper and scratch out what are your healthcare needs, your family members over the next year. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but try to take the effort to look at what is your spending gonna be and how would that work if you have two or three medical plan options. The premium that you have to pay is one known cost. There's no question about that. You can see that in your open enrollment and compare that with how much you're gonna pay under each of the different plans at the point in time you need the different care. Um, Oftentimes, the lower cost or the middle cost plan is gonna make out better um, for most individuals. I continuously see folks pick plans that don't, that really are not the best value for them. And so, oh, go ahead, Dave. Do you see, um, is there any sense if somebody says, well, you know, this year I'm in the standard plan, next year maybe I use the high deductible plan, but the year after that they find out that they're going to need some you know, surgery or something more expensive. Can people then kind of like switch back and forth from year to year and almost like play it so that if there's a year where they can schedule some, you know, uh, Healthcare arbitrage. Right, right. <laughs> so that is a great point that each year at open enrollment, you can make decisions to change the different plans you're in. Um, But that's another one of the misconceptions I think folks often have. Most plans I've ever looked at, getting back to these health savings qualified or HDHP plans, on either end of the extremes, very, very low utilization of the health insurance plan, you're not getting much care, or at the extreme end, you have a whole lot of stuff going on. Most often, the lower cost plan with the um, higher amounts that you have to pay in deductible are oftentimes cheapest on both ends of the extreme. It's when you're in the middle that it becomes more complicated to pick the right plan to based, on, based upon how much you and your employer are going to pay out of your paycheck for the insurance itself and then how much you pay a point of care. And that third lever could be, is the employer putting any money into that tax advantage to account for you? 
What do you see out there with health savings accounts now in the high deductible plans with all the group plans that you work on? Is there kind of a, a leading candidate for kind of the prototypical plan these days or is it really all over the place? Um, I would say that for us, we try very hard looking at the different plans and um, keeping in mind that by the different segments, if you have fewer than 50 people, if you're between 51 and 100 and over 100, those are sort of three basic cut points that the options you have to look at for plans in the employer market change. So with that in mind, and the majority of employers have, say, fewer than 100 employees, if I kind of keep but within those parameters, I'd say somewhere 2700 to $3,000 is the individual deductible. And if you have a family, um, somewhere plus or minus $6,000 would be the deductible. And the idea is that your deductible would be paid out of your health savings account, although often we'll recommend to people, don't touch that health savings account. That's like a, a Roth on steroids, right? It wasn't taxed when you saved it. It's not taxed as it grows, and it's not taxed when you take it out in retirement. Two questions from that. One, then where do people go for that money for mm. out of pocket? And two, if they let that HSA grow, how can they legally take that money out tax-free when they're 70 years old and they might not have all of the health expenses in that year to match up with what they withdrew? So clearly they need a good financial advisor to help them manage <laughs> those things. Um, and I would say that the, the front-end part about where do they go, most importantly, I try to encourage folks um, and I'm a proponent for just cutting up the uh, the debit card. Oftentimes with a health savings account, you get a debit card and you can be swiping that mm -hmm. all the time to pay for the care as you're getting it. I encourage folks that a little bit of friction is not a bad thing. So pay for it out of your checking account if you can afford to at all. So it's $50 for this. It's $25 for that drug. You can save up those receipts, and if you want, you can reimburse yourself, say, at the end of the year when maybe it's 500 or $1,000, which in my mind, that's a more substantial amount of money that you're less likely yeah. to let trickle through your fingers. But to answer your question, that if you do that continuously over the years and you're letting your money invest and hopefully compound and grow, um, you're 70 years old, you've got $20,000 worth of receipts from all those years, you can make a $20,000 tax-free withdrawal from your HSA. So Chris, I'll admit something here. I've you know, been in HSA, a high deductible plan for years, and uh, my wife and I have been saving the hard copy like bills that you get, right? For years and years. Yeah. And at some point, this is a massive scanning project for some future summer intern here, I'm <laughs> sure. But people don't really need to save all this hard copy proof. They just need to, at the end of the year, I guess, go to their health insurer's website and get a, a summary or, or really saving all those receipts makes sense? Saving those receipts is really the best thing. And I would probably start that scanning process now. Um, the, you love scanning. The, the things that you're referring to, pulling something down at the end of the year from the insurance website, that's a great, if nothing else, it helps you remember the expenses you actually incurred, but having the actual real receipts will be ideally the best thing to do to satisfy. So conceivably, Decades in the future, we're going to have a lot of retirees with this shoebox full of receipts from the from the early aughts. Mm -hmm. um, and if they're ever audited for taking out $50,000 from an HSA in a year, they need to be able to produce the fact that at some point they had $50,000 of eligible health care expenses. And right? you make a good point that – if you pull out $1,000, you may not be the one that's audited. If you pull out $50,000 and say it's all tax-free spend, I don't know. I haven't talked to anybody from the IRS about this, but I think that might be more likely to kick up a red flag. And so I'd want to have that shoebox, as you point out. We'll to remind it. everybody the disclosure that we do not provide yeah. tax advice. You should see your yeah. tax advisor for <laughs> guidance the, in these issues. The other comment or thought would be that more and more of the vendors in the HSA space have or are introducing tools such as a claims vault where you could take a picture, send it up so they have it in a vault and you could access it in the future. So you said something and we've talked about it a bunch here, but I want to just make clear for the listeners um, something I wasn't aware of. You don't actually have to submit the claim against your HSA for reimbursement in any given year, right? As long as you keep good records, which is what, where we got to the $50,000 uh, point, right? But the idea is, is you could pay yourself back when you turned 60 
and basically pay for an entire year of spending by reimbursing yourself for cumulative medical expenses? Yeah, so two thoughts come to my mind just framing that question, John. One is that we talked earlier about the flexible spending account and that a lot of folks bring the baggage of how those worked into Mm -hmm. the mindset of a health savings account. The FSAs, absolutely, you had to to get any of your money out of that account because it was technically a reimbursement account, you had to show that you'd paid for something to get mm-hmm. reimbursed. And it's evolved a little bit, but that concept is important to keep in mind. This is not, it's you're saying to the health savings vendor that you're working with, hey, send me my money. Mm-hmm. And then you declare on your tax form, you have to fill out form 8889. Again, this is not IRS advice or tax filing <laughs> advice, but you got to fill out form 8889. And you indicate on that, are you, did you take money out for a tax uh, qualified reason or a non-tax qualified mm-hmm. reason, and then according to that, you know, you'll pay your taxes accordingly. Um, the other thought I had with that was just as far as the um, longer-term savings, but it'll come back to me. Well, so maybe a good segue to uh, my next question, which may not we may not be able to talk too much about it here. I don't know how new this concept is, but a couple of us were just sitting in on a tax presentation on Monday, which is super exciting, hmm. and the guy was talking about. Uh, qualified plans called 401h plans which i'm not sure if you're familiar with those but it sounds like it's a it's a kind of a hsa plan on steroids where you can dump in a lot more than the what is the hsa limit now 7500 a year for a family it's 7000 7, this year 000. for a family so an additional 1000 if you're age 55 or okay. older okay so this was like up to anything over let's say you can put in 24000 into a qualified retirement plan if the total uh, max contributions are fifty three thousand in total for um, to to qualified plans. You could put in the difference into theory this four hundred one H plan, but it's on the health savings account side. Are you, have you heard anything about this type of a plan? No, I haven't heard of. A, okay. I haven't heard the um, about that specifically. Okay. What I would say is I think that you know there's been legislation multiple years now to increase the HSA allowable con- annual contribution because mm-hmm. keep in mind we keep saying annual contribution limit it's not the it's not the most you can have in the account it's the most new money that can go in in any given year there's no ceiling right now on how much you can accumulate in your health savings account there's also no minimum age for distribution where you have to start taking money out and where i'm going with that is that your plan might have for instance a ten thousand dollar family out-of-pocket maximum but the most you can put in say is seven so there's been a lot of legislation proposed to increase the most the amount of money you can put in in any given year to at least to equal your out of pocket maximum. At the point in time that starts to happen, folks like us all need to have a little bit more dialogue together to how do we best advise our clients and the individuals. Does the dollar go to the 401k? Does the dollar go to the HSA? You know, you maximize the free money if there's a match. And sometimes on our HSAs, we have a lot of them structured with matching dollars. So you've got to really have a good collaboration between the retirement advisor and the health benefits advisor to make sure that you've got a coordinated financial plan. Okay. Dave? Yeah, it seems like there's just so much more for people to coordinate themselves now. Now, when we used to have, not that, I think a lot of people can look back fondly to any you know prior time of you know what benefits they got from work because they just didn't think about them. Mm-hmm. But that's the point: is that now you have to think about it, and you have to figure out which healthcare plan is right for you. You have to figure out for the money that you save between you know just saving it to a cash account locally, saving it to a health savings account, pre-tax dollars that become tax-free dollars if they use the right way, and save into your 401k plan. Uh, it does seem like there's just a lot more for people to to know, and and how do they get that education where they work? Right. Or if they don't get it where they work, where do they find out besides listening to this podcast? Well, and I think beyond listening to the podcast, I think there's a lot to be um, taken from what you're saying. And that it, historically, it was an, a benefit. Benefits were, hey, you're sick, or you've got this problem or that problem, and you've got some coverage for it. Really, if we scale it back a little bit and think about it, it's just it's compensation. The employer is giving you so much money in cash pay, and then this is cash too, but it's going in a lot of other places. You don't necessarily see it. Things like health savings accounts is a means for us to better show the value to individuals. And I think that getting at that bigger problem we started talking about, which is the affordability of health care, not health insurance, it's just flat out the affordability of health care. Um, 
if we're more invested in that and we realize that it's our compensation going out the door to these things, we start to change our mindset. And I think then it allows you also to bridge over to things like disability coverage, which is another form of financial protections, which is what the insurance is all about. And, and how are you protecting your long-term and short-term financial interests and how do you have your income stream protected? These are all different things that I think change a person's mindset about benefits. So you mentioned disability income insurance, and I want to get to that in a second. Before we leave, Dave made me a note here, and it's ironically the same thing I was thinking about. A lot of people uh, that we deal with are kind of transitioning from, whether it's from work to retirement and Medicare or transitioning from one job to another or one job to no job, mm-hmm. you know, so we've, you know, heard about COBRA and Medicare. Can you comment a little bit, maybe if we take the, maybe the, the Medicare example first, someone who's 65 and who's still working, they're covered under a group plan. Um, can you comment just at a very high level on how that works and with Medicare and then when they finally do stop working, what they need to think about? Sure. The, um, I mean, if they're still working, they move from being 64 to 65 to 66, they can continue with their group plan as the primary plan. And there are some distinctions if you have, if you're with an employer with more with 20 or more employees or less than that, there is a, a wrinkle there we can talk about uh, if you'd like. But assuming they have a large employer, again, defined as 20 or more, they stay with that plan. The company plan is the primary plan. If they have been exposed to health savings accounts and they want to continue with them, they can do that, but they have to make certain that they do not get enrolled in Medicare Part A or any parts of Medicare, and that's a one tripwire that folks have to think about if you're Medicare eligible, but you don't want to enroll in Medicare until you're ready to actually no longer contribute to that HSA, because the two things can't be done at the same time. So that's actually, so it's an important distinction, because we always, I shouldn't say, I generally would tell people when you're 65, you want to enroll in Part A, uh, even if you're covered under a uh, group plan. However, the HSA part, I didn't want that to get lost because that's the issue, right? If you have Mm -hmm. a group plan with an HSA, enrolling in Medicare Part A would then cause a problem with that. Disallow the HSA contribution for the year. It it, it won't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't make new contributions. You can still take your money out and pay for your expenses. You just cannot put new money into it. Um, And so that gets back to that financial equation of what plans are offered by a company. If they offer two or three plans and you want to enroll in Medicare, you can do that, but you've just got to think through what the impact is. Um, and then as you get older, let's say you're continuing to work and you're going to, you know, going to hit required uh, Social Security distributions, at that point you're going to be enrolled in Medicare Part A, so mm-hmm. you're no longer going to be able to qualify to put money into the HSA. Again, there's been legislation proposed to try and change that, but as things stand today, once you're uh, collecting Social Security and you're in Part A, you cannot be making contributions to your HSA any longer. And one other tripwire, if you will, that I'd point out to folks is um, you've worked past age 65, you're staying with the group plan as the active plan, and then you're getting to that point, 66, 67, whenever, and you're going to start, and now you're saying, hey, I'm going to scale back, I'm going to actually enroll in Medicare at this point, and you've been in the HSA all this time. Once you go ahead and enroll in Medicare Part A, they're going to enroll you retroactively six months. Mm. So you have to look at that period and be thinking about your contributions. And you have that six month look back that mm. you weren't probably appreciating. So you got to stop your contributions so a little earlier. Here it is, March. I didn't know that. If, yeah, if, if, if you're, um, if you contributed to an HSA in 2018 and you enroll in Medicare Part A today, they're going to look back six months. Does that disallow the HSA contribution 2018, even though you are not a Medicare eligible recipient at that point? So count back the number of the month, the number of months, and from when you were, if you go back. So let's make it simple for, for me, anyways. If it's April 1st, you're going to start up on your Medicare plan. Um, that means you're going to go back six months, so into October 1st. So you could put in three quarters of your 2018 mm-hmm. contribution. You could not put uh, in the full amount. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. No. All right, follow-up question. So That's, okay, a, that's a 400-level question. Yeah. We didn't <laughs> intend to take the audience to the 400-level class today. And uh, I know Dave's got a plane to catch in a little while, so uh, uh, we'll keep rolling here. But So people leaving a job. So I'm not 65. I'm not retiring, but... I've either lost my job, I've got separation from service, and I've either got... Business partner surprises mm-hmm. you and lays you off. 
That's right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, people have heard this term COBRA, I'm sure, mm-hmm. and or go on to healthcare.gov. Any general commentary on f- for folks who are either there or thinking about that type of a transition? Any basic guidance? Um, a couple of things. One would be that oftentimes at the point in time you're leaving a job, it can be because you or uh, one of your family members maybe is ill. And at that point, probably the last thing you want to do is be changing your insurance. So I think folks just have to keep in mind if you're working with a company, again, happens to be 20 employees or more, and you have the uh, access to COBRA, it may be that, hey, I'll, I'll do this. It's going to be kind of expensive because it's going to be 102% of what the actual cost is for your employer plan. Most often, that's the number. Um, I encourage folks to at least think about holding on to that for some period of time for transition. Mm-hmm. Standardly, you have access to it for 18 months. Um, so be thinking about that. You can look at what point in the year is it to when the annual open enrollment is for the individual plan. So kind of look at those two different things. Um, and also, without getting too down into the weeds of this stuff, from when your employer notifies you, you have 60 days to make that decision and another 45 days to make the first payment. So sometimes you're leaving a job and you've got an offer. It's not hasn't quite come together yet. Try to be patient, calm, mm-hmm. take a look at the timeline and what can you afford to do. Um, you don't want to go more. You don't want to, you want to make sure you have continuous coverage or access to continuous coverage, but there's a lot of different ways to look at that and get it managed effectively. Okay. Um, I had a follow-up question there and then uh, I will just jump in. So, so for that individual who's, you know, moving on and maybe they're starting their own company or they're, um, you know, they're realizing they're not going to be on Cobra, but for so long and they're not going to get a job with a company that offers health insurance, then they go on to healthcare.gov to the exchange and they're kind of on their own. Is that is there anything else for them to be doing? Well, there's a couple of things and and maybe one of the things you're trying to queue up here for me if I think through is um, in Virginia last year, the General Assembly passed legislation that allowed sole proprietors to have access to small group plans. So starting last July of 2018, you could be a one-person company, and you now could access a small group plan. And just quickly, the significance of that is a lot more choice, more comprehensive coverage, more expanded prescription drug benefits. And believe it or not, in Virginia, particularly last year in 2018, and I think in the Richmond MSA last year as well as I believe still this year, um, last year there was only one choice of insurers. Now there's two, but I don't think either one of them offer a single qualified health savings plan. So- You've got these big, scary deductibles and out-of-pockets, and you can't even utilize the health savings account. So that, that's actually news. I didn't mm-hmm. know that uh, an individual could basically say, I, you know, I sell popsicle sticks, therefore I am a company, and I can access the small group plan market. Um, and you have to demonstrate that you're really aggressively selling the popsicle sticks. So you, you do have to have all the documentation. There are some hoops to get through to prove that it's a legitimate, viable business. It's not but just... it has to be your business. It can't be that I work for a popsicle stick company. That's exactly right. And I'm a 1099 right. employee. That's ex- absolutely And you don't have right. to be good at selling popsicle sticks. You have to I work hard. Has, but I actually have you to have... have, to have to demonstrate can't, because I, I can't be a contractor for somebody. can't be a 1099 employee part-time employee. Well, if you're a 1099 employee, theoretically, you are a business unto yourself. So if you've structured it properly, you could be, you know, if you're a sole proprietor, if your skill is IT and you're a 1099 and you you hire yourself out, possibly. So so this is, um, I don't want to lose this point either because we do have a lot of folks who, who are choosing to kind of leave their corporate careers early and go into consulting or go into business for themselves. I mean, are there, they could be a, a sole proprietor. They don't have to be a, a uh, corporation, they don't have to be to qualify or to be eligible for something like this in general. That's right, and I would yeah. encourage your folks to. Um, they can go online. I'm sure at this um, state corporation commission, there's guidance on exactly what you need. I would say that the different insurance companies in this initial period of this being rolled out had, you know, they each had some slightly different approaches to how they were taking that. Um, but I would encourage them to look at it and. and 
go through the laundry list of the things that they're going to need to supply to make sure that they can qualify okay. for it. Um, someone else on our team really manages that, and I can't remember each of the specifics that are required. But you do want to work through that. But we've found it to be very successful for certain folks, very beneficial to certain folks. That's interesting. We'll have to keep that in mind as a planning tip. So hey, there's one other thing I just wanted to mention back on COBRA, because you've talked about transition. It's something that we've seen uh, and been ex- uh, heard of some folks getting caught in this. When you're um, leaving a job, if you're eligible for Medicare, so you're 65, but I mentioned earlier health reasons, you might think, ah, you know, I, I'll get onto Medicare later. I'm going to do my COBRA thing first because I, I know this benefit plan and I'm comfortable with it. At that point in time, you do have to actually sign up for Part B and Part D um, because otherwise, and I know for Part B, they're going to look at it and say, you didn't sign up when you were initially available and you're going to have penalties. It's going to be very expensive. Um, you can be underwritten. So, um, I'm not a Medicare expert. I'm not an individual plan expert. Uh, those are really not our areas of specialty. But I'd at least flag that for somebody. Hey, if nothing else, if you if you're retiring um, and you're going to continue Cobra, make sure you're talking with an advisor and finding out: Do I need to enroll in Part B, Part mm-hmm. D? What stuff do I need to do in conjunction with Cobra so that you know you're protected? Okay, good. So I know we're going to lose Dave here in about five minutes, but I want to talk about disability income insurance. I would like to say that that I feel like this is one of the overlooked benefits when it comes to open mm-hmm. enrollment. And we as in our day jobs as uh, fee-only advisors, we talk about this a lot with clients, but from your perspective, I mean, to the person who does it, who sees it on their annual enrollment and they may or may not opt in or it may not be provided automatically, can you comment just at a very high level on disability income insurance and then maybe more, so, more detailed on the short-term versus long-term and why that's important? Sure, and I would absolutely agree with you. I think it's a a grossly uh, undervalued benefit. I mean, people care a lot more about if they have dental or vision insurance (laughs) than if they have disability. And I could live without having one of my teeth, but I can't live for a couple of years without paychecks coming in to cover my bills. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so so short term. So for the layperson out there, um, short term is what sixty days, or is there is there a kind of a can it vary? Yeah, um, and. Back when we started our careers, uh, collectively, um, short-term disability used to be something that went for six months. Wow. Um, so for 180 days was quite common, um, and it often was where it would start after the first uh, start the first day if you had an accident, and the sixth, the seventh day after the seventh day if you had an injury, uh, had an illness. Excuse me. Nowadays, most all of the short-term disability starts after one week or two weeks that you've been out. So you've got to pay for yourself. Getting back to the financial advisor, you've got to have that rainy day fund to last you a week or two weeks without a paycheck. And then short-term disability will kick in. More and more of the plans we see today run for the for 90 days. So including that week or two that you cover yourself, and then the plan kicks in for 12 or 11 weeks, depending upon the, that other part of it. And after that 90 days, you'll transition from short-term to long-term disability. So short-term disability, you're getting a paycheck every week for the time that you're out because some you know, average duration is just a few weeks. But if you get beyond that 90-day point, now you're moving into long-term disability. And at that point, you're really looking at a month-to-month basis and potentially being out for a couple of years. Often the, uh, the average duration, I believe, for long-term disability is a couple of years, two to three years. Is there any, Do you have any experience in the actual claim process for 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 getting benefits, say I become disabled and I can't work for years. Um, we've heard stories about, you know... Uh, Don't let the insurance adjuster take pictures of you on your trampoline. Is that what you're getting <laughs> at? <laughs> I'm not even sure what I'm to glad say he, I'm glad he can lighten the mood up here. <laughs> but um, any just basic information you can give folks to say, you know, is it hard to actually get these benefits? Uh, you know, um, Historically, folks um, have said that to get to qualify for Social Security, so that will kick mm-hmm. in. That can take that can be quite arduous and take quite some time. My understanding is that over the years the social security has gotten better and better, and certainly if it's a catastrophic situation, they have new processes to recognize that and more immediately get payment to an individual. Um, but if you think that it can take a year or two years to get fully acknowledged by social security that being totally and permanently disabled, that's a lot of time in between that you've got to cover your bills and you probably have added costs because of your health condition at that point. And then the other side of it is. You can be disabled to the point where you can't do the job you were doing, but you're not totally and permanently disabled. So what happens in that gray area? What kind of a benefit do you have? And the last thing I'd mention and kick it back to you is that 
most disability benefits that we see a setup where you get, say, 60% of your pay, and if it hasn't been structured in the right way, you can then have to pay taxes on that benefit. So people should keep in mind, what am I actually going to take home? What am I going to have to spend if I am disabled? And what is my financial plan? How am I going to cover this for whether it's three weeks or 12 weeks? Or what's going to happen in long-term disability? It's, imp- it's an important benefit for folks to know about, but they most often don't take the time to delve into it. So you mentioned something uh, a little while ago, which is, and I think, again, people probably um, kind of gloss over this like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to be disabled. But the point is, is uh, you are still alive, but you cannot work. Your bills will not stop. And there's not a lot of, there are not a lot of options out there. I mean, you can get private coverage, but generally speaking, disability through your employer is much cheaper. It is, um, and there's different elements to get into the conversation, um, particularly with highly compensated individuals and different features of individual plans versus group plans. But on mass, I would say the group plan is a much more affordable, effective way to have an income protection plan. Um, in, and I think the biggest part is looking at and understanding how much of your income is actually protected and, and making sure you can manage to that. Okay. Um, I'm going to do uh, one of our, our friend Robin Farzad has a podcast and he likes to have a section at the end called free skate. So I'm going to, I'm going to steal his term here in a second, but before we do the free skate, Dave's got to step out, I think. And anything more on disability income insurance, obviously a primer, maybe we'll do a whole podcast on that. Uh, Super exciting for us geeky people, but uh, anything else that you think is kind of DI 101? Um. You know, the, the mic is intimidating and all my thoughts seem to be jumping out of my head too quickly. So I can't think of anything at the okay. moment. Good. All right. All right. So, uh, so free skate time. So, uh, and I'll give you some parameters there. Cece, you want to jump on the mic? Okay, come on up. Cecilia Fleming, uh, one of our associate financial planners, is going to jump on just because I've coaxed her into doing so. You've met before, right? Have, yes. yes. So, any kind of other benefits, kind of on the group side, that that folks, uh, people are going through open enrollment, and we're doing it right now. Any other things that people should be thinking about that we haven't talked about? I mean, I think that a a big part of this is the spending the the insurance dollars. Um, you really want to think, well, what what's the value to me? Because insurance is offered, doesn't mean you should take it. I mean, I have people that have been blessed with great eyes and they sign up for vision insurance. Now, they're not blowing tens of thousands of dollars, but why do you want to spend a couple hundred bucks if you don't need something? So be prudent about what you actually enroll in for your insurance plans um, would be one thought that I have. Take advantage of all the different wellness type things that are out there. So if you're a person who goes out and gets your physical every year, make sure you get that recorded. A lot of the insurance plans will send you a gift card for 50 bucks or put some, you know, take something off of your deductible. So take advantage of the different features that they have for it. But more than anything, I would say just take the, take the time to go through that open enrollment and compare your spouse's plan to your plan, see which way makes the most sense um, for you financially and for the level of coverage you have. The things that I, that we're looking at, what we're trying to figure out, if I turn the question back to you guys would be, what should benefits look like as we move forward? We're talking a lot with groups about, is it tuition reimbursement? Um, is it providing testing s- support for other types of services or things that the employer wants to get access to? Um, there's a tremendous push within the industry for what they call worksite benefits. You know, folk, you know the, the, the Aflac duck is very, very prominent in everybody's mind. Yeah. Um, and for some folks, that benefit is extremely valuable and it's really helped them. But for an awful lot of folks, it's been spend, spend, spend without really having any conscious mindset to how much they're spending. So I just, what's right for the person to your right or your left might not be the right thing for you. So take a look at it. There aren't, every insurance company out there is not racing into the worksite space for the reason, for any reason other than the fact that it can be very, very profitable. Yeah. So Cecilia, I'm going to ask this question of you. And I think since you've recently come out of uh, college and you were, you know, looking for jobs for a while and you clearly have lots of friends who are new in the market. Are there other workplace benefits that, that you have heard about or you see that are out there that aren't maybe on the traditional list? Yeah, I, so I interned at a place that had interesting benefits and which included a food truck um, every week, a massage therapist every week, 
even I'm not even sure if this would be considered a benefit, but even as far as like a casual Friday or just making it a little bit more lenient, um, snacks in the fridge, drinks in the fridge, a happy hour at the end of the day or taking the company out for happy hour like once a month. So there's been a lot of different, I guess they're considered benefits, but definitely incentives to kind of reel that recent grad and younger person in as well. I think you're right. I think that you did a great job of bridging the conversation from benefits specifically to all of the different components that make up a company's culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Benefits is perhaps one of the most visible ways to really reinforce or drive your culture, but all of those things you talked about I think are absolutely critical. I mean, if you think about it here um, at Evo, one of the things we introduced last year and we've done with other clients is a wellness day. Instead of everything being about sick and da-da-da-da, it's like, what do we want to do to try and stay healthy and improve? And so that's certainly something that's there. And I think attracting the millennials is uh, is on everybody's mind right now. And, and if you can help me figure out exactly what those different uh, <laughs> special doors are to open, that'd be great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we, uh, we, we did car washes yesterday, which is, uh, well, although you didn't bring your car yesterday, which kind of backfired on us, but uh, all right. So last, last words, Chris, anything, uh, anything more you'd like to add before we sign off? Um, I, I really think that there there is no silver bullet out there. We've yeah. been looking and looking for it. Um, one of the challenges we see as an organization as we work with employers and individuals is is trying desperately to get people's attention for that heightening their education and their awareness to the benefits and how best to utilize the benefits to their individual advantage. So I appreciate the chance to talk with you guys today. It's sort of furthering that goal of mine is to try to expand people's understanding of the benefits. And if they can just take a little bit of time to open up those either documents online or the, if they're still getting something in paper to take a look at and take a few minutes to understand it better. Awesome. Chris, Chris Leahy of Leahy Consulting Services, thank you for joining us. Thank Appreciate you. it very much. Thanks to both of you. Take and care. F- for anyone who uh, wants to learn more or wants to get in touch with Chris, you can find it on our website. Uh, don't forget, uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can find us on Twitter or Insta- on Instagram at EvoFiPodcast or at Gmail at EvoFiPodcast at gmail.com. So that's all for now. I hope everyone has a great week and we'll see you again real soon. Take care. <laughs>